So last week, we were looking at verses 18 and 19. Just a recap of what we were looking at. We were unfolding this idea that Jesus Christ protects us from the evil one. John asserts emphatically, in fact, he says it is definitional that a Christian is someone who does not practice sin. In the theology of John, if anyone is unwilling to forsake their sin, if you're unwilling to repent of it, if you're not willing to see it for what it is, that is sin, and say that you're going to turn away from it, then you are not a Christian. Anyone who is born of God does not practice sinning. And of course, when we look at our own lives, this is no small matter. For we all know our own propensity to go on sinning. We all know that after we've gotten a little taste, we're, well, we're willing and more than ready to go and get some more. So we know from this passage that that is no small feat. And as we look through this passage, we saw that our inward corruption can lead us to go on sinning. But it isn't just that that, our, uh, that we as Christians are up against. We're actually up against the very powers of hell itself. Satan seeks to uh, lure Christians, seeks to tempt them such that they go on sinning. That is the harm, or that is the touch that John has in view when he says that the evil one is seeking to touch Christians. It's not a light thing. He's seeking that each Christian actually falls away finally, actually falls away completely from Christ. The entire powers of hell are at work such that we are constantly bombarded by the assaults of Satan in this way. But with all this opposition, Christians can be confident that because there is the one who is born again, or, or Christ, as we saw, the one who is born again in verse 18 is really referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He protects us. He protects us such that we are not fully and finally lost to the powers of power. Satan is not able to so fully confuse us. Satan is not able to so fully lure us away by his temptations such that we live lives that are completely engrossed in sin. And as we looked at that, we considered three, three ways in which God's preserving work comes to us. It comes to us imperceptibly. It comes to us only of grace. It is no work of ours that we do to protect ourselves. And we also saw that it is ongoing in each and every one of our lives. Hour by hour, Christ preserves his sheep. The last thing that we looked at was by application, we have to lay hold of this by faith. And our job in, in this endeavor, even though it is all of grace that God preserves us, our job is to give life to this or to actually manifest this in our lives is to put to death the sin that so easily besets us. We're supposed to forsake it. We're supposed to repent of it. God's work of preservation actually looks like something in the lives of believers. And so we're supposed to, in our lives, seek as just as someone who has a few strands of their clothing that catch a blaze, we're supposed to seek to snuff out sin as soon as we see it. So that's a general summary of what we looked at last week. Our study today will be focused on verses 
20 and 21, as you've heard me mention. John is seeking in these verses to provide assurance to believers by recounting for them Christian certainties. And the one that we see this week is that Christians know, or that Christians can be assured, that through the Lord Jesus, they have union with God and truly know God. That's the big idea that John really has here in this passage. And as we unpack that, I think it may be useful for us to look a bit more closely at the role of the incarnation in revealing God to us and the role Jesus himself plays in illuminating our minds to the true God. So where do we get this idea of the incarnation from the text? Well, before we answer that question, it's perhaps good to just have a working knowledge of what the incarnation even means. So just to be helpful for us in theological parlance or in Christianese, the incarnation refers to the supernatural act of God whereby he takes on flesh. So God himself comes and takes on flesh. He comes to us in a body as a man. This is exactly what John has in view when he writes that the Son of God has come. Or perhaps more intuitively to us, if we could change the, the meaning of the word, the Son of God has become present to us. He has come and he has become present to us. In the scripture, there are many uses of the term Son of God, but here, John uses this title to refer to the second person of the Trinity, as he has previously in this letter. Speaking properly, though, or technically, we can't say that God went anywhere. If you think about it, God, who is omnipresent, can't go or come anywhere. He can't leave from somewhere where he already is. He is everywhere present. So if we're speaking strictly, that doesn't really make any sense. But the incarnation makes complete sense of this passage. If we think about it, the incarnation tells us that before Jesus was actually, had actually come and become present in this world, he was invisible. He was not manifest in this world before. There was a time where Jesus was not. There was a time where the man Jesus, the actual physical form of the man Jesus, did not exist in this world. And so when we read that the Son of God has come, it, the incarnation makes perfect sense of this term, that John is referring to a divine person coming. He, he explains this, or the only way that that can be explained is through the incarnation. God has come to us in the body or in the person of Jesus Christ. Now take a moment to think about that. If you were living in the days when Jesus walked on the earth, you could rightly point to a man that is Jesus walking down the road and say that that is God. Creator and sustainer of the universe walking among men. God has appeared in the flesh. Through the incarnation, we don't just get a partial idea about God. God didn't just send Jesus down as some sort of spiritual hologram or something like that. That's not the sense or the idea that we should get when we read the scripture. Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, this means that we don't get to move on from Jesus 
to get a more accurate understanding of who God is. He is the true God as we read further down in this passage. There's nothing more to be revealed. If we think in our lives, well, surely there must be more to know about God than just studying and delighting in Jesus or studying and delighting in Christ himself. No, 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 a million times no. The person of Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, according to the writer of Hebrews. He is very God of very God, according to our earliest Christian creeds. As we sang before, the God of life was slain. As we look at this passage, we should get the idea that there's no better explanation of who God is than to look at the God-man Jesus Christ himself. To seek insight from, others, from some other source, to try to get further clarity about who God is, as though Jesus is not enough for our understanding of who God is, is actually to obscure who God is completely. Christ Jesus fully reveals who God is. In the words of John, no one has ever seen God. This is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. There's no one better suited to making God known than the God-man Jesus Himself. In His fullness, He discloses God completely. Within the context, the Apostle John writes having personally experienced though, Christ coming to him physically. The Apostle John actually walked with Christ for a number of years in his life. And perhaps even some of the persons who he's writing to may have actually seen Jesus physically. But at this juncture, that's likely not possible because John is writing as an old man and he's also likely writing to a con a congregation decades after Jesus has actually died. Um, so that's unlikely, but the point is John himself walked with Christ. He could say that Christ, the Son of God, has come. He has seen him present. He has beheld him as he has written in this book. But persons in the congregation may not have seen Christ bodily. So how could they be given understanding of who God is if Christ never came into flesh to them. That's the very thing that helps us understand who God is, right? Christ coming in the flesh. So how can I understand if I didn't see Christ come in the flesh to me? Well, it was expected that they would see Christ with the eyes of faith. Remember, Jesus acknowledges and even commends those who confess that he is Lord and God like Thomas without having actually seen him. So John is confident that with the eyes of faith, all those who are in Christ have seen the Son of God come. They have seen Christ come in the flesh. They have reckoned as true that God has actually condescended and become a man through faith. And the reason I point this out isn't just to be a side point. It's because sometimes we have a romanticized view of living in the first century. Like those were the best times. Like those were, like when Jesus was walking the earth, that was the best time to be a Christian. Like there's Jesus, there's the apostles. Like yes, this is Christianity at its peak and at its glory. But friends, actually it's the opposite. The poured out of the spirit 
that Christ has done for his people and also the promulgation of the gospel through through the world and the clarifying of doctrine throughout the church's life and history actually means that we're actually in a better position than the early church was at this time. The, the Christians who live today are at no worse a disadvantage than those who lived at the time of John, or even at a worse disadvantage uh, compared to John himself. We can behold Christ with the eyes of faith, just even as he beheld Christ with his physical eyes, and, and reckon and appropriate the same truth concerning God. So the incarnation of the Lord Jesus reveals to us who God is. God himself comes and dwells bodily among men as a man, and we behold him in the person of Christ. But John also adds that we truly know God by being able to be given greater understanding by Christ Jesus himself. To be more specific, the text says that we are granted understanding so that we may know him who is true. Now, who is this Him who is true? The text goes on to say that we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So the one who is true has a Son. So we should naturally infer that who John is referring to is God the Father. That should be a simple implication from the text. So we can, read, we can actually read the text like this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the Father. And we are in the Father, in His Son, Jesus Christ. That seems to make the most sense of the text. And most commentators suggest that the word true isn't supposed to be some characteristic of God. So he's not saying, like, uh, we have been granted understanding so that we can know someone who is very truthful. That's not what John is getting at. What John is getting at what true means in this context is more genuine, authentic, real. That's, that's what John is getting at. He is saying that Jesus has come so that we can know the true God, the authentic God, the one that really is. That's the sense of what John is saying. He's contrasting, really, those persons who talk about a different Jesus at the time. You may recall those of you who were here back in 2018, 2019. This letter is written in the context of persons who are actually promulgating false teaching concerning Christ. There are those who have arisen amongst the congregation of believers here who believe that Christ had not come in the flesh. They believe that it was it only appeared that Christ came in the flesh. And so John says of these people that if you do not believe that Christ has come in the flesh, you actually don't know God. If you do not understand Jesus, if you don't get Jesus, there's no getting who God is. You can't bypass Jesus and then just get to God. That's not how it works. Not at all. So, Jesus has come, the Son of God has come in the flesh to allow us to know God the Father or the God who is real. So we've just said that getting the understanding from God the Son allows us to know God the Father. But how does this understanding come to us? What is the nature of it? Well, firstly, notice that the understanding is given. 
We don't come up with it on our own. Just as Jesus said of Simon Peter after he confessed that he was the Christ, that flesh and blood had not revealed this to you. So John says this to each of us in this writing implicitly. We don't just have a sudden burst of intellectual brilliance that we get Jesus. There were many people who saw Jesus walk on the roads of Nazareth who completely missed who he was, his identity, his purpose, his mission on this earth. There were people who were probably friends of Jesus for long years, maybe longer than some of us were like. There were people who were there who completely missed who Jesus was. And that is because they lacked the understanding that the Son of God grants to each and every believer. There's a supernatural work that is done on behalf of every believer through the Spirit. That is the nature of the work. Jesus, through the agency of the Spirit, enlightens us so that we can see spiritual reality. And this comes to us through the new work. The Lord Jesus, through the Spirit, gives us corrected glasses, as it were, to perceive and appreciate who God is revealed in the Word. Because of our sin, we are so blinded to spiritual reality, we don't see things straight. And no offense to anyone who wears corrected glasses, but corrected glasses analogy coming up with a Velma reference from Scooby-Doo. In the same way that someone needs corrective glasses in order to properly see an object, in order to see what it is, instead of thinking that that object in front of me is a tree and not a man. In that same way, people born in sin, people who are born of Adam, need the corrective work of the Spirit in order to enlighten us so that we can correctly perceive who God is, so that we can have our spiritual senses corrected. The Spirit proceeds from Christ to accomplish this very work. He informs our darkened minds so that we can know God. Otherwise, just like Velma from Scooby-Doo, we would spend our days groping around unsuccessfully trying to figure out who God is. You can't understand who God is unless the Spirit actually illuminates your mind. That's the state of everyone living on earth. Without Christ, without the sending of the Spirit to enlighten our minds, we are completely unable to perceive God. We are wholly dependent on His illumination. We are wholly dependent on Him to see the revealed God that Christ wants to show us and reveal the true God that Christ has come to show us. And it isn't as though our faculties aren't in place. Sin has not so effaced or marred the mental capacities of people that people can't understand. If that were the case, we would actually have an excuse. We would actually be able to say, well, I can't understand. No, that's not the case at all. The darkness that men walk around with, and certainly the darkness that's prevalent in the church at the time that John is writing these words, did not come about because they were unable to perceive because God just didn't grant them the mental capacity to do it. That wasn't the case. It wasn't like they were uh, brain animals who just didn't have the cognitive ability to understand anything about God. It's a self-imposed blindness. The truth about God is suppressed. 
To try to extend the analogy further, we cannot see because in our sin we refuse to see. Only through the blood-bought work of the gift of the Spirit are we able to apprehend the Lord. Now having considered that Jesus is God, incarnate, and he grants us understanding to know the Father, it should be evident to us that there's no way that you can actually truly know who God is without going through Jesus. There's no way to do that. That's like, that's like traveling to Kensington or something where you decide that you want to get there from Eagle Hall or come from Spring Garden. There are many ways to get to Kensington, several ways. But the same can't be said about many, there's no several pathways that you can take to get to God. There are no divergent ways that you can take. There are no detours or anything. All of our knowledge about who God is has to funnel through Christ Jesus himself. We can't ride along some other way and think that we will arrive at the knowledge of God. We can't go through Buddha. We can't go through Muhammad. We can't go through Allah and think that we will come to an understanding of who God is. That's not how it works. Christianity is an exclusive religion, and Jesus says in John 14, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can know the Father except going through Jesus. Jesus affords us both the knowledge of God by becoming manifest among us, but also grants us understanding by His Spirit to know God. Jesus and Jesus alone is the divine exegete. As we read a few moments ago, he has made the invisible God fully known. Now we've largely looked at what this passage means with respect to Jesus revealing who God is and granting us understanding. But friends, Christ did not come so that we could merely get increasing doctrinal clarity about who God is. John reminds us that we are united to God the Father and united to Christ. We not only know about God, but we know God. We are in relationship with God. The language of this mutual indwelling is used, to, is used to give us a sense of the intimacy of this relationship. Christians don't merely know about God, they know Him. And while nothing changes this union with God, how this union is lived out may demonstrate that in our lives we are living spiritually unhealthily. Our dealings with Jesus and our relationship with Jesus are not merely in the realm of propositional statements or doctrinal affirmations. In other words, we don't have a relationship with the Bible, even though I hope and trust that your relationship with the Bible is a good one and you use it all the time. But the sense is we don't have a relationship with an inanimate object. We have a relationship with a person. We don't have a relationship with statements or doctrinal uh, syllogisms. We don't have a relationship with any of those. We have a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ and God the Father. There is a vital union that exists. And when we recall that this union with God the Father and with, with Christ, sorry, with Christ, is supposed to mirror or imitate or be a... a or marriage, rather, is supposed to be a shadow of this union with Christ. 
it sometimes is a shameful thing to think about because our unity with our spouses are often characterized as way better than our relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's, that's so often how it, how, it, how it happens. So often we find that the unity between our spouses, who are supposed to be just imperfect shadows and imperfect glimpses of this relationship with God the Father and us, so often we find that it is uh, not a relationship that points to the grandeur of the relationship we have with God, but it's a relationship that really shows just, you know, the grandeur of our marriages, the grandeur of how we relate to other people, but it reflects poorly on our relationship with God. Friends, Jesus, the Son of God, has come that you may know him who is true. Jesus didn't die and resurrect and ascend to heaven so that you would know a lot of things about God. In the words of Alexander McLaren, knowing God ought to be like landing on the shores of a mighty continent and forever and ever being able to press deeper into the bosom of the land so that we may know more of its wealth and loveliness. That's the goal of our union. The goal of our union is communion with God. The fellowship that was lost in the garden, God is aiming at restoring that fully. God is aiming at reversing the effects of the curse that broke that, that fellowship with God originally in the garden. That's what God is aiming at. And not restoring it so that it goes back to an Adamic state, restoring it so that it gets better than going back to that Adamic state. That's what Christ has spilled his blood for. That is the reason why we are in union with God. Christ has died not merely so that our heads can be filled, but so that our hearts can swell for love for God. Is that your aim, dear saint? Are you content with just being able to win at Bible trivia on a Friday night? Is that your aim? Just being able to fill your head with pockets of knowledge of who God is, but not really diving into it, trying to foster deeper and cultivate deeper relationship with Him? Is that your aim? Are you just fine with superficially knowing the Lord? I leave those questions with all of us to wrestle with, including myself, who uh, has to wrestle with this as I looked at this text. Is it my aim to know the one true God? Now before we conclude this text, verse 21 tells us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This warning at face value may seem misplaced. John switches suddenly from assuring believers that the Lord Jesus fully reveals who God is and that we are granted understanding of the authentic God and the genuine God through Christ Jesus. He switches from that to warning his hearers concerning idolatry. Commentators vary with respect to the specific form of idolatry that John has in mind. Some say because he was writing a letter to a church in Ephesus, or churches in Ephesus, that he must have been dealing with the general idolatry that was going on in the culture at the time. And so warning believers, well, don't get engaged in that. Some commentators say that. Some argue that John is sending this letter in the context of persecution broadly. 
in the church. So he's warning Christians to not capitulate their profession and worship the idols that were worshipped at the time in the kingdoms that were there. But it seems most likely to me that given the context of the book and John's zeal over and over to kind of reiterate who Christ is and who God is, the true God, that he is concerned that his hearers stay faithful to the apostolic teaching concerning Christ's incarnation. Recall that those who had removed themselves from this community had no longer believed that Christ came in the flesh. And so it seems contextually that John is warning believers to stay away from the idolatry of worshiping a counterfeit Jesus. Worshiping a counterfeit Jesus is equivalent to worshiping a counterfeit God because Christ himself is God incarnate. So I think that is most likely the case because over and over in this book we hear John saying, you know, if you do not believe that Christ has come in the flesh, you do not know God, etc., etc. So I think that's the best interpretation. But irrespective of whether you apply it broadly or specifically, as John Calvin, famous, John Calvin famously said, the reformer from Geneva, the heart of man is an idol factory. You don't need to be living in the context of somewhere where idolatry is rampant for you to try to erect your own idol in the symbol of your heart and worship it. You don't need to be in that context. You don't need to be suffering persecution in order to get into idolatry. That's not the case at all. And so John warns us that true fidelity to Christ, true belief in Christ, true adherence to what Christ has come and done means that we should be aware of the trappings of idolatry. John himself knows what is common to man. He's a man as well. He knows what is in men's constitution. And so he's warning us that we ought not to give way to idolatry. We may not bow down to idols of wood and stone, but we can easily create a Jesus of our own convenience. We can easily slip into thinking about God in the way that we imagine. That's so easy. There are plenty of counterfeit Jesuses. There could be the Jesus who is all about your health, wealth, and happiness in this life. There's the Jesus who wants to make you into another god on another planet, as the Mormons say. There's the Jesus who doesn't want to send you to hell, as the Jehovah Witnesses say. There's so many Jesuses that have been created out of the imagination of men that we could multiply several, we could multiply several examples. But dear friend, just know that it isn't just the people out there who are practicing idolatry who this warning comes to. John is writing this warning to people he has already affirmed are believers in this text. He's writing to those who he knows believe in the Son of God. So it isn't as though he's writing this to the world. He's saying that this is a present danger for us as Christians. If you think about it, when we have affections that are hot for the things of this world, when we have desires that exceed our own desires for the Lord and for the things of the Lord, we have functionally created idols in our lives. 
the warning in this letter stands as a bookend. John began the epistle, this epistle, by making a statement about God. He makes the claim that he has beheld God. He has touched him. He has seen him with his own hands and eyes. He has touched and he has seen that life that was made manifest. That's how the, this letter of 1 John begins. That God has been seen and touched and there has been a real engagement, interaction with him. And then he ends and concludes the letter by saying, don't move away from this God. This is the only true God. There are no others. And there's no other way to know God truly but through Christ Jesus. That's, that's his aim, that he wants us to be faithful to the God who has been revealed in Christ Jesus and the God who Christ Jesus reveals, God the Father guides. One of the ways we can try to align ourselves with this very command is by engaging in the means of grace. Attending church, I find personally, is one way that the coolness of our hearts and the distractions to be uh, really focusing on other things or making other things God is tempered and corrected and confronted Lord's Day by Lord's Day. This should be our aim, brethren, to have our hearts directed and our minds stayed on the God who is real. And instead, instead of, pardon me, going to broken systems that cannot satisfy by God's grace, let's help each other to stay faithful to the knowledge of God that He has revealed through Christ. He has caused our minds to be illuminated by the Spirit to truly know who God is. He has revealed Himself fully through the Incarnation. And so let us worship Him as He has revealed Himself.